Welcome to the Good Old Days Podcast. I am Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And this is episode seven. Uh, before we get started today, uh, just a couple of shout outs. Jasmine, I believe you ran a quiz on Facebook. You want to tell us a little bit about that and give us a shout out? Yeah, on Twitter and Facebook, I just asked some of our followers what was the first ever recorded words by Thomas Edison as on the 18th of July. It was the anniversary of the first ever recorded human voice, which, of course, is very important to what we're doing. And two people got it right. One was Ben Finley in Chichester, and the other was, and I'm going to really not get this right, and I apologize, Laura LaRoe. Laura LaRoe. Yes. So thank you for responding and listening. And yeah, we hope you enjoy this episode. Another thing I'd like to clarify before we get started, uh, when we first started, I think in our first episode, I told everyone our drop days would be Tuesdays. Our drop days are actually Wednesdays. So from here on out, regular drop date uh, is Wednesday of each week. Now, uh, we do have a Patreon. This is a little uh, uh, grassroots podcast effort. If you feel like supporting us with five bucks a month, we'll give you that episode one day early. So we'll drop it on Tuesday. But... Without further ado, let's crack into today's episode. We are covering the New York draft riots of 1863. On the morning of July 14, 1863, in response to the newly imposed Federal Enrollment Act, angry bands of rioters took to the streets in a violent uprising. The Federal Army, now in its third year of civil war with the Confederate States of America, was in danger of losing a mass of its fighting force as the terms of service for many enlisted men were set to expire that summer. Men, women, and children flooded the streets of New York wielding bricks, stones, knives, hatchets, and guns. Spurred on by pot-stirring politicians from Tammany Hall, many maintained they were revolutionaries, the poor common men rising up against the rich and powerful who could buy their way out of the draft by hiring a substitute or simply paying a fee of $300. Perhaps what is most memorable about the riots in the modern consciousness, however, is the violence perpetrated by these irate mobs on New York City's black community. President Abraham Lincoln's issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation in January of that year, 1863, had shifted the focal point of the war from preserving the Union to abolishing slavery. And poor immigrant workers now blamed Black people for their conscription into the United States Army. At least a dozen lynchings occurred over four days of violence. Businesses were burned, homes were torched, their inhabitants turned out into the street to be torn to pieces by a ferocious band relishing in medieval back-alley justice tactics. Policemen were killed, rioters were shot, All in all, when it was all said and done, 119 is the official death toll, but some estimates have put the toll as high as 1,500. This is the story of one of the bloodiest riots in U.S. history, the New York City draft riots. So disclaimer for today's episode, we're going to be talking about violent themes that may be disturbing for some listening. We're also going to be talking about themes of racism. What were some of your favorite sources? Some of the sources I used or relied on heavily were little documentaries on YouTube that I found that we'll post links to in our source list. I also used the collective works of Abraham Lincoln. So to get some primary sources, I used transcripts of different speeches and um, looked at several different articles. So, yeah, there's that one in the shadow of slavery um, was. Ooh, and that one's been cited a lot, too. Was by that other book that I looked at? Yeah. Yeah. So in in the shadow of slavery, the New York Historical Society also had several sources that I used. Some of my favorite sources, I relied heavily on uh, the New York Times Times Machine, their little archive. Uh, And so I was pulling actual articles that were being published as the uh, as the, the riots unfolded in New York City. So I used New York Times articles to reconstruct a timeline which is what we'll be following today. Uh, I also found a a textbook I used back in 2012 uh, called Ordeal by Fire, The Civil War and Reconstruction by uh, James M. McPherson. So pulled uh, some facts and figures from that text. 
Also, love I, I found a, a great recording of an NYU, New York University lecture back in 2010 about the draft riots. And uh, one of my favorite sources was a book called The New York City Draft Riots, The History of the Notorious Insurrection at the Height of the Civil War. And just a heads up for our listeners, we will publish or we will post uh, links to these sources, most of these sources in our show notes. However, there is a character restriction, so if we can't fit them all, just email us if you want a full list of our sources used for this episode. Now, Irish immigration exploded in New York in the 1840s and the 1850s. Remember when we were talking about the potato famine years in a previous episode? That's in the late 1840s. Immigrant populations didn't have a ton of friends in the United States. But luckily for Irish immigrants, by the middle of the 19th century, uh, or unluckily, depending on who you ask, uh, there is a uh, faction of the Democratic Party in the U- in the in New York City called Tammany Hall. So let's get into Tammany Hall a little bit. But Tammany Hall was actually established as a social club in the late 1780s, but it morphs into a political society in 1789. It becomes the ruling faction of the Democratic Republican Party in the early 1800s. Newsflash, American politics have have evolved significantly since things set out in uh, the 1790s. New York is being flooded with Irish immigrants. So Tammany sees an opportunity to obtain votes of the friendless immigrant. So Tammany, Tammany at this point, they're really considered to be a benevolent and, and charitable uh, society within the immigrant population in New York City. By the mid-19th century, People were coming straight off the boat and into the arms of Tammany Hall. Uh, This is depicted in uh, Martin Scorsese's movie Gangs of New York. Uh, When Leo DiCaprio, a.k.a. Amsterdam, disembarks from the boat, there are men waiting on the docks, handing immigrants hot bowls of soup and pieces of bread, along with a vote Tammany card. So Tammany Hall would also offer jobs and housing, albeit not great housing, in essentially exchange for votes. You see Tammany Hall politicians essentially escorting people straight from, almost straight from the boat to voting booths when it it happens to be voting time. And they get this reputation for being super corrupt. In the 1850s, um, this kind of political machine is controlled by Irish Catholics, so a complete flip from what we're seeing in the 1820s. And it becomes this epicenter for all politics that are happening in the city. And this is going to be a Democratic-run city. Now, at this point, like like you touched on, Democrats and Republicans hold different values. Democrats are going to be um, staunchly states' rights, so they'll support the Confederacy. They are pro-slavery, pro all, all that comes with that. And of course, there's a lot more to this party. But for the for the sake of our story, that's what, what we need to know. When Lincoln is elected in 1861, this is the catalyst moment for Southern Democrats. You have the secession of South Carolina followed by six other Southern states. They uh, secede, saying they have the right to, um, you know, when a government doesn't serve the people, they have a right to secede. What this does is you're going to have to raise standing armies. So essentially, let's see here, uh, when Fort Sumter is fired upon uh, by uh, Confederate Confederate soldiers back in 1861, Lincoln responds by uh, essentially sounding a call for 75,000 volunteers to help quell the rebellion. What this is going to do in turn, it spirals. And the first two years of war are kind of a nightmare for Lincoln. He goes through several different generals. Uh, he has, uh, the, the the Union Army is essentially just very disorganized. They don't put up a great resistance up against uh, Robert E. Lee. You, got, you have this like fighting culture, I think, in the South that you didn't necessarily have in the North. So it takes some time for the Union Army to build up its strength. But by the middle of 1863, the Union Army has a, a big problem because many uh, Union soldiers, their terms of service are set to expire. And so this is going to be disastrous. If you have over half your army, you know, uh, able to go home, no, not, not, a lot of, not a lot of re- reenlistment. 
uh, this is going to severely affect the numbers of the Union Army. If that happens, the Southern armies are going to be able to overtake the North. So Lincoln, in a scramble to make sure they have a fighting force to stand up to Lee, uh, they institute the Enrollment Act of 1863. And this is going to be a problem for for many, uh, especially for poor immigrants. And we'll let's go ahead and segue into New York City. The mayor of New York is a man by the name of Fernando Wood. And this part's going to be a little bit wordy as far as names, places, that sort of thing. So don't worry if you can't keep up. We'll, we'll touch on touch on more of this as we go through. Now, Fernando Wood, he is elected as mayor and he holds a couple of different positions in politics throughout his career. But he's going to be responsible for creating the municipal police in New York. So one of the first police factions. And he's also going to oversee like a ton of different violence that is happening with this influx of immigrant populations with Tammany Hall um, being the center of politics. But then also this this kind of crisis of identity that people go through and they really will latch on to their different groups. So you're Irish, you're German, you're Italian, you're black, you're free, you're not. Those those sorts of identity politics are going to play into this as well. And Fernando Wood, he is pro-municipal police. He is pro-dead rabbits. And the dead rabbits were essentially a gang of Irish Catholic immigrants. Again, if you've seen Gangs of New York, it's depicted pretty well in there. Now, during Fernando Wood's time and leading up to the draft riots, the municipal police he places are going to be overtaken by the Metropolitan Police Force. And this is going to cause all kinds of confusion. There's essentially this just like massive switch in power. And New York has so essentially two different police forces, a bunch of gangs, and lots of volunteer fire departments. So it's got all kinds of people doing all sorts of things. Lots of chaos. So, lots yeah, of chaos. Lots of... Not a lot of regulated, like be, anything being regulated by an impartial third party. Everyone kind of has their hand uh, in the honeypot as it's going to affect them positively. You know, so it's it, it the situation is rife for corruption. Exactly. And and Wood actually is also going to push this idea of secession for New York when the American Civil War breaks out. It, it isn't popular enough to get any traction, but that is some of the sentiment that is happening there. So we again, we go to these kind of Union North Confederacy South lines, but there are pro-slavery people everywhere. New York City fed its textiles with Southern cotton. And Fernando Wood the mayor, was a major proponent for New York City secession from the Union to join the Confederacy in 1861. They actually drafted a proposal to pull New York City out of the Union, which I think is insane. I think it's important to point out that immigrant groups are pitted against each other. So Tammany Hall is a big proprietor of this. Essentially, it's your group has to be the biggest and the best in order to get the best jobs. And then all of these immigrant groups, so you have the groups of German, again, German, Irish, Italian, Polish, are put it against the free black community to say, well, if emancipation happens and more states start emancipating, there's going to be a flood of free black people coming into New York and taking those jobs for even less money than, say, an Irish worker might. And that is a beautiful segue into the Emancipation Proclamation. So what 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 and I'd love for you to dig into this. But what does the Emancipation Proclamation mean for the United States? What does it mean for the immigrant population and what does it mean for black people? The Emancipation Proclamation is kind of this political document. And I stand by that. I think Lincoln really signs it to keep other nations away, keep this as a solely American problem. Doesn't it also allow uh, black people to serve in the in the army? Yeah, so it, it allows for enlistment of newly freed black people or free black people um, into the Union Army. So it changes it changes a lot of things. And in its wording, it's very I don't know how to exactly what word I exactly want to use here, but it's a little convoluted in its wording. And a lot of people will take the Emancipation Proclamation and say, well, that's freedom for everyone. And it doesn't actually work that way. What it explicitly says is that 
slavery will not exist in territories that are in active rebellion. And it actually lists these territories and it includes um, Arkansas, Texas, parts of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, and Virginia with the exemption of West Virginia. So it does not include Tennessee where we are, even though they were a Confederate state because they are under quote-unquote union rule by that point and it does not include the Arizona territory so today Arizona and New Mexico they actually join the confederacy too we forget about them a lot um (laughs) so so it explicitly says where this is applicable to and it frees only enslaved people in those areas so at this point there's an estimated four million people enslaved in the united states this document is supposed to free about three million people and so while that is a great deal that's a great number of people most enslaved people will not find out about this they will not find out about it in 1863 1864 1865 that's why we celebrate juneteenth today is it was finally finding out about freedom And of course, this particularly pertains to Texas, but really everywhere, unless if Union soldiers explicitly came onto a plantation and said, this is a document, people are free, they can, you know, go about their lives as free people now. I mean, slave owners aren't going to be like, oh, well, this is the law in a country that we don't belong to anymore. So we're going to follow it. It just it doesn't quite work that way. It's more of a statement. So by this point, early 1863 sentiment is already torn in New York City, uh, and the Emancipation Proclamation essentially fosters a major shift in what the war was all about. It shifts the focal point from preservation of the Union to abolition of slavery. And this, unfortunately, was not cool with many of the immigrants. I think the whole country was split over this point regardless, because uh, just because people were abolitionists or there was a lot of abolitionist sentiment in the North does not necessarily mean that people were for equality. All right. Self-preservation, I think, was king here. People wanted to be able to preserve themselves and they didn't want more people flooding the job market and taking already scarce jobs for unskilled laborers who were probably making 50 cents a day at best. So, um I don't know. I, I, I guess I can see how it would have been effective to fearmonger about this new, newly freed population. Uh, so many of the immigrants who have signed up to fight for the union prior to this are extremely angry that they are now officially fighting for the freedom of the enslaved. They have been told that freedom would mean mass migration to areas like New York, uh, Boston, Philadelphia. That means less jobs for them enthusiasm to show how great of an American they are. So that's that's kind of like a linchpin for for many immigrants. It's like if you if you fight for this country, you're an American. If you want to prove you're loyal to the United States, you enlist in the army. And so that's like really a kind of a pushing point, a selling point. And now enthusiasm for the U.S., uh, for the United States, wavers among these large immigrant populations. Per ordeal by fire. 130 U.S. Army regiments were set to expire by mid-1863. Quote, although ostensibly a conscription law, the real purpose of the Enrollment Act was to stimulate volunteering. Under the presidential calls for men that preceded each Union draft in July of 1863, March, July, and December of 1864 are the dates of these drafts, the War Department assigned each congressional district a quota based on a percentage of its eligible males minus the number of men who had already served in the Army. So as of March of 1863, when the draft is going to be instituted, all white males between 20 and 45 must register. And this includes anyone who has filed to become a citizen, even if they're not yet one. Uh, Now, here's... Here's the kicker. There's an exemption, uh, a fee for exemption. So if you could furnish $300 uh, to pay for a substitute, you could get out of the draft. That's about one year's wages for the average working class Irishman uh, at the time. So how did the Irish respond to this? How did it? And I feel bad just saying just saying the Irish, but I feel like that's really the focus of the draft riots. A, it's it, a lot of the scholarship done on this 
specifically cites Irish immigrants as as having a major beef with this. So that's the only reason we keep saying Irish. We're not trying to single out one immigrant population, but that's typically how scholarship uh, covers this. So how did the Irish feel? They're not not very happy. Um, And there's a lot of propaganda. And of course, this is spurred on by places like Tammany Hall that an Irish wife is only worth $300 to the United States. That's what's put in this document. Um, But to purchase an enslaved person was $1,000. So essentially, black lives are worth more than Irish lives or white lives. Of course, they're completely ignoring the institution of slavery and how that's entirely generational and the whole idea of citizenship and and everything else that, that rolls into that. The base point is a black person is worth $1,000, a white person is worth $300. And so this, this just growing rage inside people is really spurred on by this. And this is kind of kind of mountain, mountain, mountain. Finally, New York, which is our focal point, New York gets a date for their first draft. And that is in July of 1863. All right. So uh, first day of the draft, let's get into the actual riots. So the first day of the of the draft. So uh, that is they the provost marshal of New York City is going to roll out a draft wheel, which is this huge round barrel contraption. And they are going to start drawing names. All right. Uh, This starts on Saturday, July 11th at 10 a.m. And it's reported that everything was pretty calm. People were jesting and heckling as names were called. Uh, they recognized somebody and call out things like if a rich, a known rich man's name was pulled, people in the crowd would shout things like, oh, there's $300 for sure. In total, about 1,200 names are drawn on that first day, almost all Irish. Sounds a bit Hunger Games-ish. Now, <laughs> it, it does. May the odds be ever in your favor. Everyone goes home. City officials are reportedly relieved. Things didn't get rowdy. I mean, they had, they had, I think they brought in extra police and everything to make sure the drafts went smoothly. They were afraid people were going to rise up and, and cause trouble, but no one did. And it was very curious, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief. Now, they suspended the draft to start again Monday morning. So, Sunday, you have church, and then people head to the pubs. It doesn't take much for local gang leaders to get people riled up. Monday morning, July 13th, people start grouping together around 6 a.m. By 9 a.m., a small group of Irish, allegedly one of the uh, volunteer fire brigades, protesting their lost immunity to conscription, attack the New York Tribune office and attempt to burn it down. They bust open the doors, break the windows, and set fire to the ground floor. The draft wheel is scheduled to start spinning as it did on Saturday at 10 a.m. And so they're going to attack the draft office next. They're going to destroy the the draft wheel itself and anything that symbolizes the draft, including the office, as a symbol of protest. They're going to attack police officers, known Republicans, random people on the streets that look rich enough to buy their way out of this draft, right? The police and city officials are completely caught off guard. Like I said, they had they had beefed up security for Saturday to prevent, you know, any unrest around the draft. That, that's when they thought it would happen. But it would appear that at least the organizers, whomever they may be, it, it's theorized that this was Tammany Hall uh, was egging on uh, at least the initial groups of people, groups of, of uh, uh, recently drafted immigrants and they're like grabbing people off their jobs and and, you know, you're not with us, you're against us. And um, so by by the time Monday night rolls around, there's been very little resistance from from the police. In fact, the police superintendent, John Kennedy, while attempting to survey the damage of that first day, Monday afternoon, he's actually attacked and almost beaten to death in the street. Uh, no one has any idea what to do during that first day. Everyone is just caught with their pants down, so to speak. Uh, by 5 p.m. Uh, on that first day, the, but the, quote, colored orphan asylum has been burned down. Now, thankfully, the 200 orphaned children who lived there and schooled there had already been evacuated. 
Uh, this is a super horrific story. The building, in some accounts, was lit while the children were still inside, and hecklers screamed all kinds of nasty slurs at them, hoping to see them burn while they made their escape. So I guess those are two different accounts of what happened, but... I read that all 200 children were able to be evacuated, and for some strange reason, the rioters didn't attack them as they were leaving. They just heckled them. Yeah, I read I read either way that they escaped, but one of the stories was that they didn't escape until the building was already on fire. So I don't know what's true there, if like that was kind of implemented to make it sound more dramatic, or I think there's so much chaos that you can't really know exactly what's happening. Uh, so the New York Times on uh, Wednesday, July 15th, published a letter from one of the rioters. Um, and I'm going to read that to you now. Uh, This was apparently written and sent to the editor of the New York Times on Monday night. To the editor of the New York Times, you will, no doubt, be hard on us rioters tomorrow morning. That $300 law has made us nobodies, vagabonds, and cast outs of society for whom nobody cares when we must go to war and be shot down. We are the poor rabble, and the rich rabble is our enemy by this law. Therefore, we will give our enemy battle right here and ask no quarter. Although we got hard fists and are dirty without, we have clean conscience within. And that's the reason we love our wives and children more than the rich, because we got not much besides them. And we will not go and leave them at home to starve. Until that draft law is repealed, I, for one, am willing to knock down much more rumhole politicians as Kennedy. Why don't they let the... And they say a bad word, but the slaves kill the slave driving race and take possession of the South as it belongs to them. So what do you think about this? I mean, it's a compelling argument. I I sympathize, honestly, with them here. And that's that's not something that I have felt in all of my research through this. But this is, the, yeah, this is a very well written letter until you get to the end part and then it's like well why don't you just let you know let the the black community do it themselves um which very problematic for so many different reasons but yeah there is this element of we don't want to fight a rich man's war and that's why we're doing this and it's not driven by anything else which as we know in the in the outcome it's driven by racism and tribe tribalism and all of these different ideas that are are going around but yeah it's it's a it's a compelling argument in a certain sense i can see why people would kind of join the ranks of of the rioters yeah i mean if this is what they're touting you know it's i i think it's interesting too the editor of the new york times responded to this in the same uh column and basically, like, slayed this person saying, you know, if you're not patriotic enough to fight for your country, it goes back to the argument. The good immigrant is one that fights for the U.S. That's how you prove you're a citizen. And so that's essentially what the New York Times throws at this at this argument. Well, and it just draws up so many, like, interesting ideas of who is a citizen and who gets rights and who doesn't. And again, I think it's it's a really interesting division that politics has managed to drive because this. Essentially, in my view, you should have like the immigrant groups supporting and vice versa, the free black community as well. They're in the same situation, looking to do the same jobs. None of them are being paid as they should. And none of them are able to achieve the level of rights as a, what, what is it called? A, a naturalist? Na- naturist? Nativist. A nativist. I don't know why they were nativist. So none of them have been able to achieve like the the level in society of a nativist. And of course, that's going to be very different for white immigrants than it is for free black people. But there is a sense of similarity in those communities that they just further divide themselves by rather than coming together over it. Uh, that just reminded me and of the of Gangs of New York. Uh, in the beginning, Daniel Day-Lewis's character is, I think, in in uh, chat with Brandon Brandon Gleason's character, and um, he says they make they make a comment about Tammany Hall being on the docks, essentially 
soliciting votes and 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 aid or in giving food and foodstuffs to the immigrants coming off the boat. And Daniel Day Lewis's character, or, or uh, I believe Bill Wild Bill or Bill Bill the Butcher, Bill the Butcher. There we go. Bill the Butcher says, "If I could stand down there with a gun and shoot every single one of them as they're coming off the boat, I would." And he's the nativist. So I think that that gives you kind of an idea. I don't think that's that far off no. of like what the what the ground grassroots nativist argument was. But immigrants aren't nativists. Like they, they don't belong in that camp. Everyone, you know, the, the nativist hates the immigrants. So there's so much class warfare, so much class warfare, so much. I mean, it's just it's just chaos. It is complete and total chaos. Well, and just the entitlement of the people who call themselves the nativists, because of course, they're not native. They themselves were immigrants, what, two, three, four generations ago, maybe longer than that. But for the most part, they... America's great hypocrisy. Yes, exactly. All right. So uh, on Tuesday, July 14th, most of the local businesses have closed because of the rioting. All right. So everyone just shutters. They're like, we're not opening amidst this craziness. And this leaves thousands of people who otherwise would have been working that day with a day off. And what do you think happens, Jasmine? They join the riots. Well, of course they do. So, of course they do. So, uh, by this point, thousands of people are in the streets. And I mean, I cannot overstate the chaos of these moments. The uh, uh, rioters actually cut the telegraph wires of the police and the fire departments. So they can only the, the police can only communicate from one district to another by sending a physical messenger across town. What could go wrong? Right. So you just have a breakdown in communication wholeheartedly. Uh, the rioters attack numerous boarding houses, specifically on Roosevelt Street. I read a, a good long article in the New York Times from, uh, I think, Tuesday talking about all of the, the boarding houses. There were lots of boarding houses for uh, black uh, shipmen, seamen, um, and uh, several of them are uh, looted and torched. Uh these residents would pull or they uh, the rioters would pull the residents into the streets, beat them after robbing them and burning down their homes. They also target factories and armories because, well, why wouldn't you? You need supplies and are reported to be throwing bricks and picking police off with snipers. So they're pretty, pretty serious. <laughs> what, what I read in one of the articles from The New York Times, uh, they they raided an armory and, and took 200 pistols and shotguns and rifles. And be- they the rioters were squabbling amongst themselves about who would get what weapon and gave the police time to uh, uh, do a counterattack. And so they were able to disarm most of them. But I thought that was hilarious. Like, so you, like, rush this armory. You, got, you get your hands on a bunch of weapons. And then everyone's just fucking arguing about who's going <laughs> to get what gun. And then that... <laughs> It's yeah. madness. I think that just really that that underscores the madness of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. And then, you know, I read a whole bunch about the looting and two of the shops that were particularly mentioned where Lord and Taylor, their employees showed up to work with their guns and defended the shop. Brooks Brothers did not. Brooks Brothers got completely like torn to pieces by by looters that were just taking everything and dressed themselves up in fancy clothes and <laughs> had a right old I time. I thought that was funny. I, I know it's not, it shouldn't be funny, but I thought that was hilarious. Like they go in and they just like dapper themselves out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's it's a symbol because a lot of um, heckling of immigrants comes from what they're wearing. Like you can tell an immigrant by what clothes they have on because the fashion in New York is so different from the fashion in these rural Irish and German and Italian villages and they get laughed at because they might be wearing something that was fashionable in the 1830s and so they stick out so to put themselves in modern American fashions is to say that they belong there which again you have this big kind of contradictory meeting of ideals that they want to be American but they don't want to they don't see fighting as being American and I think that's a really interesting and important point that they're making yeah absolutely Uh, it says rioters looted a Brooks Brothers store 500 men and boys burned a barbershop and a shoe store and then looted Brooks Brothers so I was thinking 
okay, so you can't get a haircut, and now you're not going to have any shoes, but at least your suit's going to look really good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What the hell? We mentioned Monday, the uh, powers that be are essentially paralyzed. They are completely caught off guard by the massive amounts of of rioting happening. Uh, And so uh, the governor of New York is going to make haste and arrive in New York City on Tuesday morning. Okay, Uh, and this is a Democrat named Horatio Seymour. So governor of New York's New York state. He arrives in the city. Uh, The Times assesses Seymour. His initial uh, uh, assessment of the city is that, quote, government's governor Seymour feels confident that the mob has no organization and regards them as roving bands of lawless desperados bent on plunder. Now, he's going to go ahead and give a speech at 1230 that same day. So 1230 on Tuesday, he's going to address about 500 angry rioters, and he's going to call them my friends. He's going to employ them to return to their homes. At this moment, the legality of the draft was being debated. All right. So the legality of Lincoln's Conscription Act essentially is being debated. And so he appeals to these crowds. He says, go home. Go home. The legality hasn't even been determined yet. I have personally sent someone to Washington to ask if New York can be exempt from this draft because we've already given so much to this war. And so he's just really trying to get everyone to calm down. But you can see he's playing both sides of the fence. He's pandering to noncombatants, right, saying that these are lawless desperados. And he's also pandering to the rioters. So he's trying to play both sides. But the fact that he calls this group of people my friends is something that uh, Seymour apparently never lives down, ever. It doesn't really do much, though, does it, what what the governor says? Like, it doesn't seem to have much of an effect on people. I don't think really anyone goes home. (laughs) No one goes home. It just gets worse. And at that point, the violence perpetrated upon the black citizens of New York City had reached new levels. And I I thought about how to write this because I am not kidding. I have six pages of instances of like specific instances of violence, either uh, beating someone to death in the street and stringing them up on a lamp pole, uh, dismembering, uh, just, just terrible things, terrible, terrible things. Uh, but I think this quote from the New York Times, this is actually a quote from uh, an article written on July 20th. So this is several days after the riots end. And I think this sums up what what happened in that community fairly well. So I'm going to read that to you now. To the editor of the New York Times, the events of the past week have cast upon the world some 3000 people of color, homeless, penniless and destitute. A large portion of these have been rescued by the police from the brutal and fiendish mob, hunting them like wild beasts from their domiciles and through the streets and alleys of our city. Some have found asylums at the station houses, a.k.a. the police station, and others are secre- uh, secreted in places of doubtful security. A large number have been carried by night to Blackwell's Island for safety. Hundreds are still lurking about the suburbs of the city on Long Island and in the woods along Harlem River. Some have been rescued under piers on on the North and East Rivers, where they were thrown in to to drown. Parents are parted from children. Husbands and fathers have either been murdered or driven from the city. In one instance, a father, after rescuing his family from a burning home, from his burning home, was thrown back into the flames and burned to death. In another instance, a child was taken from its mother's arms and dashed into the rear yard, some 40 feet away. Many are bruised and maimed for life by fiendish outrages. The old and the decrepit, in many instances, driven from sickbeds, are lying on bare floors and the damp flagstones of station houses. They have been stripped of every article of clothing and furniture, which now make comfortable the homes of their persecutors. So we don't even know how many people are victims. If they didn't die or were killed or injured in these in these riots a lot of people flee they leave their homes and just go so we're not sure who's a victim who's left where people are it's it's pure chaos and i think this is a really interesting point i came across 
the opposition to the governor asks Lincoln, he sends a messenger and asks Lincoln to impose martial law, and Lincoln refuses. He says that it would set a bad example. He doesn't want to do that in his own states. He's worried about the optics. And so they're just going to have to sort it out, essentially, on their own. And it's it's not going well. The, <laughs> the um, what do I want to say, like the people that we would see as officials, so like firefighters, and I brought this up earlier, but the volunteer fire departments are fighting each other because they're on opposition, like opposing, they're, they're fighting each other because they're on opposing sides. So there's a couple of different stories on Tuesday of you have one fire department lighting fires, so setting tenement buildings and businesses ablaze, and then another fire department showing up to try and put that out. And while they're putting it out, they're fighting the other fire department and fighting the rioters, and it's just like mass chaos of who belongs to which group and in the end you don't really know, so people just end up fighting each other over who knows what. The New York City draft riot is not the only one happening as a result in response to Lincoln's Conscription Act. Uh, Riots are happening throughout the Northeast at this point. Boston, Philadelphia, New Jersey. There are pockets of violence reported throughout the Midwest, and various draft officials have been chased out of towns or indiscriminately killed or lynched. So New York is definitely not alone in this particular amount of of civil unrest. So the riots start to simmer down, they start to quieten down by Thursday. And also by that point, the uh, police forces, for for lack of a better term, kind of gain more traction. And there are somewhere around 3000 soldiers in the city to put down the riots. The reason that there was such a slow response too is they pulled quite a few companies from the fields of Gettysburg. So Gettysburg had been fought, I think on July 3rd, uh, or July 2nd. And so there were they were dealing with the bloody aftermath of Gettysburg. And in order to quell this this rebellion, this this riot, they have to pull companies of men from Gettysburg. And so they're they're really all starting to arrive by Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday afternoon. And this yeah, this this helps put it down. Like the New York Times says, there three detachments of Marines, one company of Zouaves, one company of regulars from Fort Schuler. And so essentially they're like pulling from everywhere and the police force as well as as the the gangs and the mobs did, they went through the city and pulled anyone who had a gun and was willing to help them um, fight as well. Now, we're not really sure exactly what pulls this to a grand stop. A lot of it is credited on Friday at noon. The highest archbishop in the area addresses the crowd and they kind of disperse from there. It's it's this big gathering to listen to this Catholic um, Catholic archbishop and people kind of calm down and, and leave it from there. So by most accounts, noon on Friday is when this comes to an end. And like I mentioned before, we're not actually sure how many victims of this riot there are. The official number comes out at 119, but it's likely to be closer to 1,500. Some reports even say in the thousands. And again, newspapers at this point like to dramatize this, especially um, newspapers coming out in the Confederate States, which see this as a, a, a victory for themselves. They see this uprising in a union state in the name of essentially the confederacy which is not not what it was doing but that's how they're reporting it another reason why the riots might have simmered down to uh, it was reported on i think on thursday in the new york times that the draft was actually going to be suspended and i think it was suspended for about five days until everything calmed down and then they went ahead with it yeah, yeah, Lincoln refuses to give in to this group. So even though he doesn't agree to imposing martial law, he still wants the draft. He says they still need people, like they're not going to let this get in their way. They couldn't they couldn't survive. Like the Union Army, if he if Lincoln didn't Im- institute a draft in the middle of 1863, the Confederacy would have won. I'm going to make that argument because of the amount of soldiers who were going to be taking out of the fighting force at that point, like regardless of the lack of supplies for the Confederate army, you know, regardless of all those things that we can probably think about that shows, you know, like basically the, the stranglehold that the Union Army got on the Confederacy, none of that would have been able to be maintained or happened without the, the fighting force. So he, Lincoln had no other option. He had to institute draft. Yeah, I mean, that was something that the the union had as well. It was a numbers game. And without their numbers, 
you know, what did, what did they have? So, um, he wants to go ahead with it and he'll actually set up a new date in August and it'll be heavily, heavily armed, <laughs> um, to make sure that something like this doesn't happen. Um, and uh, happen again, I should say. And so in August they will have the draft set up. It goes through, apparently there are no problems and that's the same in other cities. So all, although there's small incidents in other cities, these drafts will go forward with a much more heavily armed entourage as it, as it is. Um, there are lasting impacts on the black community from this though. And it's estimated that a third of the city, or, or sorry, it's estimated that a third of the free black community in New York city at this time is either killed or has fled. The black community is reduced to a number that is lower than it had been since 1820. Yeah, so the implications on the actual war is even though 80,000 people are drafted from the state of New York, only about 2,300 end up in the Union Army. I actually I have a direct quote from Ordeal by Fire that specifically discusses the success of the draft. So, quote, only 46,000 men were drafted directly into the Union Army and another 118,000 burnished substitutes. So when you look at that, it doesn't really look like it was successful. However, McPherson, who wrote Ordeal by Fire, uh, asserts that, quote, when one recalls the real purpose of the draft was to stimulate volunteering, a different picture emerges. Nearly a million men enlisted or re-enlisted voluntarily during the two years that the draft was in effect. Thus, despite its defects, the system did work. That is interesting. I don't know. I don't know if it did work or not. I think there's been such opposition in history to drafting in general in like the United States that I know I don't know that it's an effective system, but it must do what they intend it to. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep doing it. Yeah, I mean, the draft has has been met with severe resistance in the United States. I mean, just look at Vietnam, you know, I mean, World War Two, I think, was a was a different in World War Two, everyone united to fight the Nazis. It was pretty it was not a hard sell. <laughs> I don't think that was a difficult thing to to talk people into doing, you know. Uh, but yeah. So how do we remember the draft riots? Oh, I do like that that the quote from the Baltimore black man, which the, in Ordeal by Fire, he said he calls him a a Baltimore free black, which I hate that. I hate that so much. He's not a black. He's a man. Yeah, like, what are you? He's not. Mm-hmm. A, I, what? <laughs> By that, that old free Baltimore black. You know? I know. I know. It's so infuriating. <laughs> or the blacks. That's what all of the documentaries I watch was like, the blacks. I'm like, no, <laughs> the black community, like black people. Like. I hate that. I hate that so much. Like, let's humanize him a little bit. Yeah. Uh, But I thought this quote was particularly interesting. Uh, Quote, this year has brought about many changes that at the beginning were or would have been impossible. The close of the year finds me a soldier for the cause of my race. May God bless the cause and enable me in the coming year to forward it on. This was not the only incident of racial violence in the United States. I know this shocks a lot of people to hear that statement. Uh, But uh, I wonder... How many people know just the scale of of riots that have occurred on U.S. soil as a result of, you know, issues of race? Jasmine, you want to you want to venture a guess how many incidents and keep in mind, uh, you know, we, we, we're talking about this specific New York, New York draft riot of 1863. I mentioned there were riots happening in other cities at the same point. But I don't necessarily think that those are all counted individually. So but how many how many incidents of racial racial rioting and and racial uh, violence do you think have occurred in the United States up to this point? I mean, events like this one, I would say like like a four day riot, like a four day riot. While we know the Red Summer, we know Tulsa, we know the Rodney King riots. I think those are the big ones. But I'm sure you know, when I talk to people about the draft riots, so many don't know about it. So how many do we just not account for in history? I'm going to venture a guess and say between the Civil War and today, say 30 incidences of riots. 
According to blackpass.org, they have a pretty comprehensive list of of, uh, incidents of of mass racial violence uh, starting, and I only counted from starting from 1776 uh, up to present day, 93, 93 riot-like incidents surrounding racial violence, 93. Wow. And I mean, that doesn't even include lynchings and individual acts of violence and murder. So that's astonishing. And how little we actually pay attention to this within our history. And those are just the ones that we've that are recorded and talked about. Remember, the Tulsa riots, it's only been in the last decade or 20 years or so that that's even been a discussion. It wasn't even in, uh, according to uh, a friend of mine or a friend of ours, uh, Becky, it wasn't even in textbooks in Oklahoma up until like the early 2000s. So it's crazy. I mean, these these I think these incidents are really kind of try to put we, people try to push these to the back of the modern consciousness because and we talk, you and I talked a little bit about this. People want to be proud of their past. People want to be proud of their country's history. And I think that's a sticking point for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, pretty, pretty amazing stuff. So I would like to leave everyone with how have we or how have we not changed as a nation since the Civil War? That's what I will ask listeners to consider and think about. Uh But Jasmine, do you have anything else to add? This was a good episode. I enjoyed this. Yeah, I mean, I would say I'd love to know people who are listening to this episode what their take on this is. Did you know about it? What do you think on changes um, to, well, what do you think on changes since the Civil War? Like how how far have we come or how far have we not come? And does that surprise you? And I'd love to get some emails or comments on our social media about this if you if you have an opinion. Absolutely. Folks, thank you so much for listening to episode seven. Uh, If you liked what you heard today, please head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a a five-star rating uh, or a five-star review, but you don't have to write anything if you don't want to. Just clicking five stars is is enough for us, Uh, but it really helps us get noticed, get our names out there. Uh, we've got a lot of really interesting topics to cover in the in the coming episodes. So we hope that you stick with us. I mentioned our socials. You can follow us at the Good Old Days Pod on Instagram and Facebook. We're the Good OD Pod on Twitter. And you can email us at the Good Old Days Pod at gmail.com. As always, if you have any requests for topics uh, for us to cover on future episodes, please send us an email. We would love to be able to cover a topic that maybe you just don't have enough time to research on your own and you'd like a more comprehensive view. So send send us that, uh, that info and we just look forward to giving you more episodes. So thank you all so much. Uh, we hope you enjoy your week. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye.